Welcome to China Econ Talk. I'm your host, Jordan Schneider. Before we get started today, I wanted to let you know about a new newsletter I'm working on. Every week, I'll be summarizing and analyzing the best long-form Chinese language articles about the sorts of topics we cover on the show. Sign up for free at chinaecontalk.substack.com and check the show notes for the link. China's gaming market is the world's largest. 620 million people, nearly twice the size of the populations of the U.S. and Japan combined, play PC or mobile games. 70% of men and two-thirds of women play games at least monthly, and nearly all of them occasionally make in-game purchases, adding up to an industry that brings in almost 40 billion U.S. dollars a year. In this episode, we'll cover the evolution of the gaming market and development in China, as well as the regulatory issues impacting the industry. So we're joined today by Frankie Huang, and her preferred introduction is a Beijing-born, U.S.-raised, Shanghai-based insight strategist and writer who worked on the localization of sleazy Chinese MMORPGs into English once upon a time, as well as Josh Ye, a reporter at South China Morning Post's new Abacus site covering everything China and gaming. So, Frankie, what's your favorite Chinese gamer slang? So I actually don't play many Chinese games, but I have to say my favorite slang, the two names of PUBG and League of Legends, so Chizi and Lualu. As someone who's really fascinated by the plasticity of the Chinese language, I really just like that witty Chinese humor in these names, as both of these can be interpreted as being fairly dirty, and I really like that. Okay, well, you gotta clue us in here. Okay, so the Chinese slang for penis is jiba, right? So Chizi is like, you know, eating or it can be interpreted as such. I know it's like chicken dinner, but the the association is there in my mind about this being related to, you know, fellatio. Okay, and then we have uh, League, League of Legends. League of Legends, Lu Alu. So Lu uh, can be slanged for um, masturbation. So Lu Alu is like, yeah, like basically. <laughs> I have quite an immature All right, sense and, of humor. Uh, okay. All right, and you, and you, Josh, I'm not sure you'll be able to top that. <laughs> best of luck. That's definitely hard to top. But I think my favorites are Ke Jing and Gan. Um, these two terms are probably the most used adjectives in game reviews in Chinese because uh, the first one, Ke Jing, means pay to win. Uh, essentially, it translates into Krypton Gold. The origin of this is a myth itself. It probably came from World of Warcraft. There's a rare item that uh, involves Krypton. And now it's used to mean a game that is essentially pay to win, which is the gaming model for a lot of Chinese games. The second one is Gan. Gan literally means liver. So what's hard on the liver? Not just liquor. Some of the Chinese games, their game design, their game loop is so uh, frustrating. They deliberately abuse you because they know that you're a sucker for these rare items in the game and you will come back for more. So a Gan Yoshi means that a game that is requiring a lot of time and a lot of grind. I think that's very interesting because you see a lot of Chinese gamers chuck it up as a win when a game comes out and turns out it's not a Gan Yoshi or a Ke Jing Yoshi because that's so common in China. All right, so so mine is Bian uh, Shi, which is like in, in Dota or League of Legends, if you're using a spell on someone that's already dead. 
So you're whipping dead bodies. So you tell people to like, don't kill folks when they're already dead. I really like that and get called out for doing that uh, pretty frequently. Jordan, uh, Bian Shi actually has a historical reference that I want to explain to you very quickly. Oh, please. Yeah. So um, in the, I think the warring states, I'm not like, don't quote me on this, but like in ancient China, there was a, a general who was betrayed by his original king and he uh, joined a, a different king. But when when his latter king um, conquered the kingdom where he came from, he knew that the, the king who betrayed him was already dead. So he dragged his corpse out of his tomb and whipped it to shreds to, to relieve his anger, even though, you know, it doesn't really actually punish this guy because he's already deceased. So, I, that, so that's where the, the reference actually comes from. I love that. It's like the, the classic Achilles move, right? Of, uh, of dragging the body mm. behind, your, behind your chariot. Exactly. Yeah. So there are a lot of historical references uh, sprinkled into Chinese pop culture. And this is something that I really love. Fantastic. So before we get to today's big stories and trends in the gaming industry, I'd like to hear a little bit about uh, your experience, Frankie. So what was your first gig here in China where, where you worked on localization, it seems? Yeah. So when I moved to Shanghai, it was to join an international game publisher that localized Chinese MMOs and later mobile games for international release. So my role was the hardest one in the entire localization department because I took the Chinese game, the language pack, the art, and the dubious IP and localize it into the English version, which then is used by all the other languages, German, Spanish, French, Russian, and Turkish these other teams took would take my version of the game and then turn it into uh, those versions. So, you know, that, that job really just trained me for being the ultimate MacGyver on the job. Like, if I need to put out fires, I would do it however way I can. Like, if half of the characters are actually stolen, I need to go supervise the developers and the designers to change it enough so that we can get by. If I realize that the music is actually from God of War. I need to call the CEO in the middle of the night and get him to call one of his composer friends to figure something out. Um, <laughs> so it was quite an adventure. Uh, in my like nearly two years working in gaming localization, I learned a lot about the way Chinese MMOs are developed and the way they're monetized and the way the products are managed. So that inside look sort of at the at the industry is something that made me become interested in gaming even after I left. Sure, yeah. I mean, one of the things you just pointed to was the uh, sort of relatively rampant IP issues that come from taking uh, <laughs> taking models, taking uh, mechanics, taking uh, you know sound Everything. and what have you. Everything is up for grabs. Okay, and and so so Josh, yeah. what kind of feeds into that for these developers? Uh, you know, I presumably there are no consequences when working in the domestic Chinese market for you know using some good sound or some some good artwork. I mean, I'm not legal experts here, but uh, usually it just kind of like I said, you know, they're trying to grab the most popular, you know, game mechanics because the, the thing is like gameplay or like mode of game is not necessarily protected, even though like some of the IPs are. Um, so I feel like, you know, that's the most prevalent way of kind of like quote unquote stealing an idea. So they kind of like run with a certain popular idea, for example, Chiji 
uh, and then like battle royale, and then turn that into something else. So, Frankie, what were the what were the other sort of dynamics and lessons you took out of this experience? You talk about the game development process in Chinese MMOs. What did that look like to you? So, first of all, I have a lot of sympathy and respect for the Chinese developers. I absolutely don't blame them personally for the IP theft, for what they have to do, because they're under tremendous pressure to perform. Meaning. The, they never get enough time to do a good job, and there are KPIs that the product managers are required to hit. So they're always looking to whatever game is doing the best to try to, you know, take what is it that works and then put it in their game. And typically, the products, the games aren't meant to have a very long life, maybe one or two years. They're not looking for it to keep running indefinitely. It just needs to look good enough to draw the players initially. So what they basically do is hash together something that resembles other popular games enough, but is still like just different enough to make people want to have a taste of what they've made. So, yeah, the the developers are very very hardworking. They are always working late. They do the best they can, and they're always willing to work with me when I have these ridiculous de- demands about. Copyrights about making them do things <laughs> over when it's usually okay to to fly in the domestic market. But I never demonize them, and I would never say, you know, that these people are not as good or not as ethical as as Western developers. They just work in a different environment. Yeah, sure. So one of the main challenges for uh, these these MMOs in particular have been the monetization schemes. And it's, you know, free to free to play models, particularly in the MMO space outside of China, have gotten a really bad rap of late. So what was your your sense of how the foreign markets responded to the overall game design that the games you worked on played out? I'm not quite sure how well they did abroad because that was beyond what my department monitored. Beyond knowing that this one is generally doing well or this one not so much, but my CEO at the time did say that one of the reasons why he decided to open his company in China is because nobody nobody had as good an algorithm for microtransactions as these Chinese game developers that they know exactly how to bore slash um, frustrate people into paying to get the game going so that you're not grinding indefinitely. But at the same time, they give the grinders who can't or won't pay just enough to keep going. So it feels almost like this digital meritocracy. It's a real fine line between uh, getting people so frustrated that they quit, but also having them like the game enough that they're willing to pay, you know, the five or ten dollars to exactly. speed things up. It's a true uh, art. It's very tantalizing to them, yeah, because it feels like they're working hard. It it feels like I did a great job, and now I'm going to treat myself to that boost, for example, or this boost can get me much further, so that like it'll be a while before I need to pay again if I you know play more skillfully. Like there's always these emotional incentives on top of. You know the social aspect within MMOs, which is when players, typically in a guild that they form with other players, feel this obligation to do right by their by their tribe, essentially, and they can't let everyone down. So if I can pay so that we all win, they will gladly do it. 
It's a it's a true 21st century psychological art, the the magic and mystery of getting people to press buy on one to two dollar purchases over and over. It's it's actually brilliant. And, you know, it's a little scary. I mean, it's it's very scary how how well these people have their their players figured out. But yeah, they're really the good. The thing is, was it what introduced MMO to China is actually mostly through uh, I would say, was it actually made MMO took uh, took off in China is actually through uh, World Warcraft though. So like that's a Blizzard title. Uh, that's not necessarily. I feel like people still kind of look up to that model more or less. So it's kind of like you know, there's a sense of irony that people are thinking Chinese MMOs have better algorithms figured out. But I mean, there's also like an army of like different uh, Chinese MMOs. So like there are different kind of permutations of products than tests on. But uh, I feel like people have a sense of like what a good MMO is, and then there's at this, I don't know, like, you know, as of now, still, there isn't a Chinese equivalent of uh, WoW that can actually uh, take its place. So one of the interesting trends that you've been reporting on, Josh, is how some of the really big game developers in China have actually still been trying to get that uh, WoW-level success in the MMO space, investing, uh, you know, the, the, the millions and millions of dollars and the hundreds of developers needed to create something of that uh, quality. The uh, the Netties and Tencent games uh, like Justice Online uh, have really been been swinging for the fences in a way that a lot of uh, Western developers have sort of given up on in this in this genre. I wouldn't say uh, people have given up on MMO because I actually would disagree that uh, WoW is going away. Even though I mean it's a it's a really old game, so uh, you gotta understand that people leave because of that. But then I feel like the community is still. Uh, very much alive, uh, especially with the new patch and all. But I mean, yeah, like MMO, because MMO in China is huge. It has a lot to do with the fact that like China banned console gaming for 15 years. And that's, that's insane. So like, you know, people only got to play and socialize through games like MMOs, right? You know, if you think uh, World Warcraft is actually big in the US or in the West, it's probably like 10 times bigger in China because that's all people got. Yeah, so like, what is it? Big companies are still trying to recreate that. It's because that is a generational uh, phenomenon that kind of defines how gamers interact. And um, it will be silly to kind of lose that chunk of market share and then, you know, fail to capitalize on that, that, that genre. Because I feel like there's still tremendous support for that, uh, for that game. Um, but it's hard to replace a game like, 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 like World of Warcraft. And NetEase is trying to do that is partially also there are like some different reasons behind that they're trying to invest in a big game that's also MMO. Cause like if you talk about like the biggest gaming developers in China, you're talking about Tencent, you're talking about NetEase, right? But then for them there's no incentive to make like console uh single player games. Cause like nobody's gonna play that. Even though they have the budget and the money, if they're gonna was it make triple A games there better be something like an MMO that, you know, invites everybody in and then has a, a sustainable uh, way of generating revenue. So it's more that. So like if you look at Justice Online, like the graphics level, the gameplay, I mean, is completely, what is it, uh, ahead of everybody else in the MMO genre because people don't invest as much in MMOs in the West because there's already a World of Warcraft. But in China, the gaming experience kind of it's larger than just MMO. It's like, you know, what people play. Sure. 
So, I mean, you know, the, the, the Netties having Taoist priests praying for it, exercising the servers on launch seems to have helped them out a little bit. Um, and I just want to recommend this game, Justice Online, for uh, Mandarin study. It's fully voiced in <laughs> subtitles. And even though there's like some kind of ancient, confusing language, it's made for teenagers to understand. So I don't find it impossible to follow with my mediocre Chinese. So, uh, Josh, you brought up the, the duopoly that we see in the Chinese video game industry with NetEase, along with Tencent, accounting for 70% of Chinese uh uh, Chinese gaming revenues. So could you talk a little bit about how this dynamic between these two companies uh, is really different from the West, where it seems like a lot of different actors and developers are, are competing on a much more level playing field with each other? I mean, to understand how these two companies come to where, uh, come to be what they are today, uh, you got to understand a little bit of the history of you know, gaming in China, right? So because console gaming was banned from 2000 to like 2015, and, you know, to be frank, like, you know, there isn't much gaming talent back then, too. So, like, these gaming companies come to become giants through publishing. Like, they, they didn't really develop their games. They mostly just through, like, publishing big games on from Western companies. So, like, for NetEase, it has a license to publish all the Blizzard's titles. So, then, essentially, um, World Warcraft kind of made uh, NetEase as big as it is now. And Tencent... Uh, it published a bunch of other games. So, like, right now it's a publisher of, like, Fortnite. It's a publisher of uh, League of Legends. And um, so those two companies became what they are through publishing games and then generating revenues and then buying up other uh, foreign the Western players. So, um, yeah, that duopoly, how it comes to become what it is now is kind of uh, hard to figure out why there isn't a third player. But... Um, yeah, so I, I guess because if you take your games to China and you want to kind of actually have a reliable partner, you just pick the big guys. Um, there isn't any other incentive to go with like a third party publisher. Um, but you know, Monopoly doesn't seem very right either. And I guess that's why, uh, NetEase and, uh, Tencent have become what they are. So just to give a sense of just how large these firms reach are into foreign developers, uh, just to list off a few of the studios that Tencent has bought recently, uh, Supercell, the creators of Clash of Clans, Epic Games of Fortnite fame, and Riot Games, who run League of Legends. What's going on behind this strategy of acquiring all of these foreign publishers, Josh? This is actually a very, very interesting story. Um, if you kind of think of it, because like, like I said, console gaming was banned for 15 years. And now you come to think of it, the biggest uh, Chinese company, which is Tencent, is the world's biggest uh, gaming company. And then I feel like that kind of tells a China story from a very interesting lens. Because in a country where gaming is banned to now, like these decision makers kind of like have like their fingerprints everywhere, all over the world. I think this is actually a very underreported China story, to be honest. But yeah, their strategy with this is that I, I feel like it kind of tests how these people know how regulations work, know how revenue works, know how gaming behaviors works. And also, like, they don't, they don't really have the talents, to be honest with you. They understand the business side of things, but then they don't, they don't, they don't, they don't have the creativity, they don't have the talents to make their own AAA games. But they have the revenue, so they try to buy up uh, all these uh, different companies and then bring them to, like, the biggest gaming market, which is China, right? And then they have the infrastructure, and then they have the uh, technical know-how to kind of run that business. 
Um, so they're more like the business expert on that front. But then now they're actually like shifting towards developing more of their own titles, and then they they are putting together very powerful and technical teams to kind of create their own titles. Yeah, I agree with what Josh said about Tencent. It's definitely running gaming as a business as one of the you know digital giants of not only China but the entire world. It it makes sense for them to also have their fingers in the in the gaming pie, but. Yeah, even even though、um, I would say not all the heads in in Tencent are just business people, that some of them are, you know, maybe software savvy,、uh, maybe they're engineers.、Uh, the truth is, I don't really think Tencent has any higher ups who are real gamers, and this is why they're able to approach gaming, approach acquisition、uh, with intense business savvy. But when it comes to creating their own titles, and they they have acquired many large to smaller studios, it's difficult for them because they don't really have a point of view. They're not really a game development company. There isn't really a kind of game you would associate with Tencent. You wouldn't think, you know, oh, you know, with Blizzard, it's like oh, high fantasy, or you know, with Epic, it's like fun shooter. Yeah, when you think of Tencent, you think of other more serious products. You think of、uh, WeChat. You think of like bike shares. They're ultimately not really a company that puts out fun original things. They're sort of there to help your life function. But then they also managed to like take some of the. I mean, in the beginning, they do a lot more、uh, clones when they couldn't really buy up or like you、mm-hmm. know get license in in China. So, for example, a lot of、mm-hmm. like,、uh, for example. Mario Kart's and、um, uh, was it Counter Strike, right?、Um, they didn't, they didn't、uh, <laughs> get the license to publish these games like for legit. But then they were able to kind of develop their own versions、um, to these games, which essentially are gaming clones. But then because the IP laws and because of all yeah, that, because they recognize that yeah, these are these are very successful models. So you know they just need to give people more of it because there is such a big market. There will always be people who are willing to try the clone, the chapudor version that you know is convenient, maybe because they're already living within like a Tencent ecosystem in in their own digital lives. Oh, this game is being recommended to them like through a push notification, and they try it, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And、um, just because like it's like much lower cost than sharing the revenues with the legit partner, because like. They were the early、um, competitors in the internet scene already. They kind of already occupied in mind share,、mm-hmm. so like it makes sense for them to just kind of copy these games. And、um, and they they're really good at it. Like the fact is, they're extremely good at copying games in the very beginning. And yeah, it and, works. And, and they work. Yeah, it always then, works. Like, they make a ton of they, money. They understand. I mean, through copying, I feel like through copying, they also learn、mm-hmm. like every feature of that game. They basically just kind of tear that game apart. They、yeah. master it. They absolutely become masters of recreating these these gaming these revenue models. And the truth is, these really innovative games that blow us away—they're always labors of love. There's always enormous risk、exactly. in trying something completely new. You never know if people are gonna love it or hate it, and. Tencent isn't really in the game of that kind of risk when it comes to gaming because there's so many there are so many success stories just waiting for them to just retell. There's 
there there's zero incentive in trying to come up with their own, especially when, yeah, they don't they don't have one they don't have their own story right. to tell. Like, but like if you look at how successful they have been with just this formula, it's insane. Like because the biggest game yeah, is totally. the biggest game in China is Honor of Kings, right? Uh, which is known as Arena of Valor yep. in in um, in the West, but then. They literally、mm-hmm. just kind of ported、uh, League of Legends onto mobile, and then because they understand where、uh, the consumers are, they try to meet the consumers on the mobile platform, and then essentially it's the same game, but it's more、exactly. uh, simplified, and、um, they they just perfected that art to the T. Like there's no question about it. Not to mention they have all this user data. They pretty much know exactly where the needs are. Who these people are and what kind of games that they want, so they just make more of it and feed it to them. Yeah. So I want to say that I feel like there is a, but like going into like the mobile, like smartphone era, I feel like China has a huge advantage <laughs> in they know how the mobile platform works because everybody, because people like kind of under、uh, overlook what was it, mobile as a platform, and um, but then because. You mean overseas, overseas, right? I mean, in the West, people don't take like、right. mobile gaming seriously.、Mm. But then, for Chinese people, this is like their first console ever. This is like their first, you know,、uh, gaming device ever, right? And、um, they understand how that works. The overhead for developing a mobile game is much lower as well. And then they understand like the UI. They understand the user behavior. They understand the expectation. How much a gamer can take on that platform. And then at the end of the day, I feel a lot of games are still gonna go down、uh, the mobile routes.、Um, but like you know, China has years of experience practicing that first. I was just saying before that Tencent has you know millions of players' user data, so they can target、um, like with incredible precision. Who needs what kind of game and just make it for them? Yeah, and I feel like why Blizzard decided to go with、uh, NetEase to develop、uh, the next Diablo game. They actually see that like you know these Chinese companies through publishing games and through copying games from PC onto mobile, they understand how people behave on the mobile end of things, and、um, and then that's a tremendous advantage that、uh, Chinese company have over. Western companies in the gaming space right now. Yeah. Could you walk us through a little bit of the evolution of the Steam scene? We've talked a little bit about these giants so far, but it does seem like there is a a bit of a, a nascent indie gaming universe that has been able to find a fair amount of success on a foreign platform. I mean, the Steam. Yes, the Steam story is actually quite interesting because like Steam has been a great market for a long time. It used to be just was it the hardcore gamers who went to Steam, right? But then actually, I took off mostly because、uh, PUBG. So PUBG, I don't know what exactly how that game attracted so many Chinese players. Like, what's so unique about it? It's a great game, but then you know, there's something speak tremendously、uh, to Chinese gamers, and it rose. And so Steam was the Steam was the only place where you could get a copy on the mainland, correct? Yeah. So like, because last year. There, there's a license freeze in China. That's why a lot of the Chinese publishers they decided to take their titles to Steam, which doesn't really require like government licensed、uh, government approval to publish games. That's why you see a spike of at least three best-selling titles on Steam that are Chinese games. So the first one is Chinese Parents, and then、uh, Ring of Elysium, and then the third one is、uh, Scroll of Taiwu. So.、Um, 
Like Ring of Elysium is actually not an indie game. Uh, it's under Tencent. But then the other two are very small budget indie titles, truly. And then they, they sold a bunch. And then the magnificent things about them is that they're only available in Chinese. So only Chinese uh, gamers get to play them. But it kind of attests to the fact that a lot of Chinese gamers are on that platform. Frankie, have you have you gotten a hold of any of these games? Uh, I watched uh, some Chinese parent because I have a Mac and I'm pretty sure they don't have a, a... Yeah, they only have PC versions of it right now. But it's such an interesting game to me that I've consumed a lot of content about it. And I can see why it took off in China because it's just about their lives and their experiences and it really exposes just how how difficult it is to to thrive and to succeed in this day and age and yeah it, it really resonated it's you know the graphics aren't really to my taste but i would definitely call it like a, a masterpiece of a of an indie game. So so just to give some context, the uh, the idea is you are a parent and you are scheduling your son's life. Uh, so you're assigning activities, you're telling them to do this type of homework, that type of homework, and this incredible mechanic it has is like the life stress meter. If you kind of overload the kid too many times, then they will die, uh, which is pretty or like you know get super depressed, which is super. Um, intense and the 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 whole idea of uh you know having to compete with a different ie to like show off how much cooler your kid is than the than your cousin or you know making sure that you're not that your grandma didn't buy the cheapest bite size so you didn't get sick because of bad food i mean all these little uh windows into the life of life of young people in china through this game was just uh was 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 really fantastic and the genius of it is it exposes all these elements in Chinese life that are very much gamified. I think for people who are trying desperately to get ahead to beat their peers to like the few scraps that they feel like they're fighting for, everything is a game, but the stakes are just sky high. Uh, Josh, any thoughts on it? Yeah, I mean, I feel like I see it more of a uh, just a satire. Uh, I, I think... That game sold a lot of copies, like from actually from I played it in this demo uh, when when this demo came out. Yeah, like Frankie said, like the graphics, everything about this game is very scrappy, to be honest with you. But um, the the premise of it, the idea of it, kind of tests to the fact that like people in China are trying to say something, and with these kind of indie games, they do have a story to tell. I have interviewed a few was it uh, indie developers. They're saying that they chose not to work for uh, Tencent and NetEase. Is because they actually want to um, say something through their games. Uh, a game like Chinese Parents, it definitely has something to say about uh, the current ed- education system and uh, how people are being raised in China and all that. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so, uh, so the this this dynamic of Steam as this uh, semi-legal platform may uh, may may come to the end at some point soon, Josh. So, what is uh, what is going on here with the the partnership with Steam with the Chinese developer and the potential quote unquote death of Steam in China? I mean, I don't have the crystal ball, so like, I don't want to pronosticate saying that like Steam is on its way out uh, in China, but then. Yes, the but the Chinese steam is yes. coming right with perfect yes. world. So like the sign that people are reading is that um, steam China is happening. So steam has been available uh, unregulated for so many years, but then steam China arriving onto the scene 
um, because people worry about like Steam can get shut uh, can get shut down anytime, right? Um, and then, but like with, so the only way to do it is legalize it, so to speak. Um, so like that's why they vow uh, partner with Perfect World to develop Steam China. But yeah, so but but the thing is, I mean, people don't worry about Steam China out of nothing because they actually have seen precedents of this. For example, when the console ban was lifted, PlayStation tried to get into China. I mean, PlayStation got into China, and then it has an official presence in China. But if you compare uh, PlayStation Store in China and versus its global version or uh, its shops and its stores in other countries, it has a, a pathetic low number of titles that are available. So it's heavily censored. So like people worry about that. People worry about oh now we got a Steam China and then we just gonna ban uh Steam forever because that's yeah people worry that people worry that uh the government is gonna just ban Steam forever because Steam China is here and then they have excuse to um ban it outright. Yeah, because a lot of players do link uh government involvement with censoring and regulating content with. Lowering the quality because it's the developers creating this wonderful game for the gamers to enjoy, but then these stuffy government officials coming over to make sure that it's proper. So for people that enjoyed like usually pirated like black market versions of original copies of these games, they think the Chinese version is, you know, either they would say it's watered down or even that it's tainted. That this isn't. What the developers meant for them to play, and they're not enthused about Steam China being yet another watered down version of what they loved for so many years. Yeah, I wonder. I wonder how much of Chinese parents would have gotten through the ethics committee for online games, which has recently been set up. Oh, it would have been much more positive, I think. Less, less like satirical, as as Josh said. But I feel like the thing that people read about Chinese gaming news. They tend to see it as a much more of a, an alarmist, so to speak, um, because they do worry about that. But a lot of times, that um, I do think that, for example, with an ethics committee, it's not necessarily a bad sign because the worst is that like like the licensing free is so much worse than having a, a overseeing government body to kind of review games. At least you know they're getting licensed through, so um, people. In the industry, actually, see it as a good sign uh, sometimes because they know that regulation is kind of inescapable. So the biggest gaming news of the year was the game licensing ban, which helped contribute to Tencent's cratering stock price in the second half of the year. Um, I want to go uh, go and take a step back though and look at the history of video game regulation in China. Um, so first, a broader uh, philosophical question for you two: um, What do you think the difference uh, between is between the U.S. and China when it comes to video game regulations? In terms of video game regulations for the U.S. and China, we can just relate it directly to um, free speech and freedom of expression in these two countries. I don't think. It's even necessary to go into much detail because in the U.S., um, the only speech that's really banned or heavily regulated is um, anything that that presents like clear and present danger and, um, yeah, is obscene to children. So that pretty much leaves everything else. I think for most of the games that end up being problematic in China,、um, ends up being fine. In the U.S. and 
Growing up in China before before I moved to the U.S. when I was in the third grade, I remember playing on the Xiao Ba Wang, the the sort of um, knockoff NES, and gaming was demonized even then because children are supposed to be studious. We're supposed to, you know, have fun that's wholesome and somehow develops character. So parents are always worried about their kids. Sort of getting led astray and becoming obsessed with something that doesn't contribute to their career in the future. So this is sort of the ideology that that is the foundation of how the government sees games. That it's it's sort of a corrupting force. And now、uh, in this day and age, it also represents a lot of foreign ideas that might get into people's heads and cause them to sort of stray from、uh, official or approved. Um, ideology. Yeah, I feel like demonizing is definitely. But at the same time,、yeah. sorry, just one more, one more thing. At the same time, we all know how huge the gaming industry is and how much money it's worth. So getting rid of it, just stamping it out, would obviously be a mistake. There are definitely people in the government that would advocate for it, even if they don't like or understand what it represents.、Um, Content-wise, it also it represents money. And money, good. Yeah, I completely agree with、uh, what Frankie said. Demonizing is definitely the the word that have been used the most about games, be it from、uh, government mouth mouthpiece or from gamers. Actually, they're like、uh, editorials that said, like, even though they're clamping down on games, but then、uh, there's also editorials that said, don't demonize games. But then, because you know, Chinese government is such a moralist government, for better or worse, that you know, the worst case scenario is that they ban. Uh, they could ban games, which they have done.、Um, so that's why people kind of still have a little、uh, hangover fear from that era, because they also have come to understand that like people are gonna game one way or another. Instead of sending their money to、um, the private versions or like you know、um, the unregulated、uh, piece of that cake, now they have kind of you know become much more much more、uh, receptive to the idea of actually regulating gamings and allowing gamings to that extent. And esports is a huge scene. It's interesting to think back to the、uh, late '90s and early 2000s when you had the the U.S. Senate holding hearings. I, I think Joe Lieberman was the leader in this charge, talking about how the likes of Doom and、uh, Grand Theft Auto were corrupting the youth and contributing to crime rates and and murder sprees and whatnot. So it's not as if、uh, the U.S. doesn't have a a history of this、um, of this kind of fear of. Uh, gaming in its、um, in its in its past, but the the kind of days of 1930s Hollywood style、uh, regulation against against movies isn't something that really has ever、uh, been in the in the Western gaming tradition as much as it has in. In China, and Josh, as you've alluded to earlier in this episode,、um, the big moment、uh, and probably the most critical one in the history of Chinese gaming was the ban of consoles wholesale in the early 2000s. Yeah, that changed everything, and that shaped Chinese、uh, gaming industry to what it is now. This is why all my gaming clients have to do a completely different.、Um, Chinese strategy, whether they want to or not, because this is basically Mars, in terms of in terms of、uh, a gaming landscape.、Yeah. But also, I feel like the the good the, the upside to this, so to speak, not the upside. I don't know how to word this, but yeah. But another kind of、uh, unexpected result that came out of this is that it really、um, it really kind of engendered the esports、uh, industry, and then how 
uh, Chinese esports have come to be what it is now because because of the uh, the, the banning of console, people play a lot more PC games. People play like World Warcraft. Uh, people play Warcraft and all that. So that's why you got very dominant players on. But do you think do you think if consoles weren't banned that esports in China wouldn't be as well developed today? Because I would think it it would be both. Like they'd both be robust right now. Oh yeah, no? I mean, okay. I think you're completely right. I think I I just kind of yeah. I I think it would be much uh it would be a lot a lot was it different. Very different from like what 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 we sure. see now. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. They're more focused. They're not <laughs> there are fewer things, maybe not distracting them, but there's even more investment in esports because yeah, it's you know, you can even get a degree in esports now just to just to show I've how much I've sat in on Beta esports classes. <gasps> No, but tell me about the eSport classes, uh, Jordan. I'm curious. So I only sat on one. It was just a kind of overview of, of the industry, and it made life sound really hard for this place. I think the tricky thing about the whole scene is that it really um, picks up people and, and spits them out. And if you're you know not at the top of your game, there's always another 18-year-old right out there to, um, to replace you on, on these rosters. Um, so what's, what's an interesting trend both in, uh, in China and in the West as well as is of these top players who have a kind of compelling personality ending up moving a little more towards the live streaming side of things uh, where you can develop a more, uh, more stable lifestyle, a more reliable stream of income. Um, so I was wondering if one of you guys wanted to talk about uh, the, whole, the whole video game live streaming ecosystem of like Huya and Douyu and the likes. Uh, I'm actually going to interview a live streamer later this week for my job. So it's a shame that we're not doing this a bit later where I can actually talk about having like interviewed one. But that is a really strange industry to me, maybe because I prefer playing rather than uh, watching. But it's huge. These, you know, Douyu, Huya, um, YY, they're just full of people playing and watching. And one of the things that I, I read about, about live streaming is that it's related to a lot of different types of watching. Like, for example, in Korea, there's that weird trend of people watching people, other, someone on, on their screen eating dinner and then they eat together. It's similar. Because uh, you can sort of participate with another really good or really cute player. And then it's sort of a, a kind of social interaction. And then sometimes uh, fans would get a chance to play with their, their favorite streamer. And it makes them feel close to that person. And like fans become friends with each other. And this is all... in My, my theory is that it's because people are lonely. It's because they lack sort of simple warmth in their in their lives and they can get that from watching or participating in game streaming i think this is the future man like live streaming is the future because advocates we are doing live streaming uh we're streaming games and we're demoing games on on twitch and all that but yeah i mean i feel like live streaming especially video live streaming has come to a perfect storm right now especially with the emergence of battle royale games there haven't been any sort of other titles that have been more suitable for uh, live streaming, essentially because it's such a, you know, like you, you, you get to see it through the third person perspective and then, you know, there's always something to do. There's always excitement and danger lurking around in the battlefield. Um, so I feel like that sort of entertainment 
your attention and your attachment kind of get latched onto a singular person. That is that is powerful, you know. Like you can follow a particular person, you feel like part of that that cult or part of that group. You watch this person grow. Yeah. If esports were to like you know become any more professional, and then because people are like you know becoming so much more comfortable with gaming, it's like watching a person playing basketball. It's like you know watching a person who does something that you can never do. If you watch any of the Fortnite streams. Like these people, how 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 they pull off? For sure, there's all this beauty and finesse in the way that they're playing, and you're enjoying their their skill set on display. And you sort of maybe you want to be like them. Maybe you're studying their moves. Yeah, it's exactly like watching real sports. Yeah. So esports and live streaming is very intertwined in that way.、Mm, yeah. Um. My coworker told me he loves PUBG because the amount of teamwork required is. Very high. I think when you're when you're playing with a friend, you have to really have each other's backs. You have to like maneuver、uh, together in order to survive. You have to cover each other. You have to protect each other. You have to pull off things that one player is not able to do. And I think just going back to what I said about people being lonely, you know, gaming together is a way of bonding, even though you're not. Physically, maybe sometimes you are physically in a room together, but you're actually immersed in this、um, fantasy world where you're both these larger-than-life、uh, characters that can do these amazing things and you know shoot people with no consequences. It it gives you catharsis. Maybe after a day slogging away at your dead-end job. Not to say my my coworker has a dead-end job. He doesn't. It's just it's just stressful. But for a lot of people, gaming is a way to you know go do something. Um, exciting! Like have a little harmless explosion in the evening after like doing spreadsheets all day. Yeah, I feel like we only see in the beginning of this because like, I feel like gaming companies are figuring out the formula of like what games are, and then in terms of like how PUBG and Fortnite battle royale games can be so, including all the elements from live streaming, esports. And then also just you know how casual can feel. It could be, I mean, it could be like you know as thrilling as you want it to be. And also like you can just like drive a plane in、uh, Fortnite and do anything you want.、Um, and people still watch it. So like、mm-hmm. there's that kind of latitude in、um, in what you want to do. So I feel like and in China like because people are already on PC and then they're already doing that. So there's a huge、uh, potential and market for that. For sure, Frankie and Joss, thanks so much for coming on China Econ Talk. It was my pleasure. I really enjoyed speaking with you guys about this. Yeah, it was an enjoyable talk, and、um, I mean, I can talk about Chinese gaming like every day of the week, twice on Sunday. China Econ Talk is edited by Jason MacRonald and Kaiser Guo, and is a proud member of the Seneca Network from Sub China. For other great shows on China, check out the Caixin Seneca Business Brief, the Pan Daily Tech Buzz China, the New Voices Podcast, and of course, the Seneca Podcast. Now in its ninth year. Until next week. <laughs>
怎么看我的心情？